Today's guest is Mark Freeman. Mark started his career as a pre-med student with an interest in sociology, but ultimately, he fell in love with research and experiment design, leading him to a career in data science. When he's not producing great content on how to level up your data science game, he's working on building the future of data contracts at Gable AI. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Mark, the very first question I have for you is, especially as someone who's dabbled in so many different parts of the data world, how do you describe your work to a five-year-old? It depends on what stage in my career. If I had to describe my startup job right now, that would be much more difficult. I would basically describe it as wherever there's a fire or there's an issue, I just sprint towards it and fix it because that's just what startups are about. Nice. But if I were to focus more so on the data side, the data engineering side, is I would talk about kind of the apps they use. So like, I imagine a lot of young kids use TikTok or YouTube. There's a lot of information brought to you for that. On the data science side is, which videos do you see first? Yeah. Well, what's going to keep you most engaged? On the data engineering side, how do I bring data from one point to another point where it's personalized to you in a really fast way. And so I'm just in the business of thinking about data from all sides. And my career has really reflected that from being a practitioner to the business side, anywhere in between. It seems like if you go with the firefighting analogy, you're driving bigger and bigger engines every day. Pretty much. I'm working on the biggest engine I've used yet. <laughs> and it's a wild journey. <laughs> well, Marka, you've had a very different career origin than a lot of data science professionals out there. And I know during your undergrad days, you spent a lot of time researching sociology. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that transformed into you becoming a data science professional? I mean, I love sociology so much. I was a pre-med student. I went to community college first before going to university. And my major was chemistry. I ended up taking all the sociology classes that need to transfer on Students. I was just so interested in them. And I was talking to my counselor, and they're like, hey, you can transfer as a kid major in four years, or you can transfer as a sociology major, like right now. I was like, that's the easy decision. I'm a sociology major. And through that is actually how I learned how to really work with abstract ideas. Many times, sociology, it's hard to run experiments in that setting because you're working with populations, you're thinking about kind of like these kind of squishy fuzzy kind of changes to describe our world, right? And through that, I actually got involved, transferred over to UC Davis for university, got involved with doing research in sociology and ended up having my research. It was on the Black Lives Matter movement without big, big kind of thing, looking at media and then college perceptions of it. That was my first time really diving into like the research process of not just even doing an assignment for the experimental design, but like doing the experimental design, getting the paper ready, going through professors to understand how the theories apply, presenting at a symposium, and actually got first place at that symposium. I got one of the best research. And that was a huge turning point for me because I'm not a good student. I actually don't like school too much, which is surprising because I have my master's degree. But I had a lot of imposter syndrome because I wasn't a good student. And so me doing research finally made it click in my head. I'm like, no, Mark, you belong in these mm. academic environments. You can really actually do some incredible work. And from that point, that symposium and that research, which was actually my senior year of college, that really changed my perspective about myself, how I engage academia and tough topics, and really about experimental design. I became obsessed with research because it was just so much fun for me. Going from those early research days and working with 
very sensitive data. What were some of the unique challenges that you had in working through healthcare and sociological information, especially on the experimental design side? It sounds way trickier. It really depends. Right now, looking back, it's definitely intimidating. But because I was pre-med that entire time, I was working in clinics. So I was exposed to HIPAA and like PII, even before I really understood data. And basically, when you work in healthcare, they put the fear of God in you around security and HIPAA compliance. Basically, like, if you mess this up, you go to jail, which I think is a good thing to have. So like, for years before you even got to data, that was just on my mind. I protect data. That yeah. is secure, right? So when it comes down to the experimental design side, actually, I would argue for experimental design, you know, PII is a big part of that. But I think it's a much later stage. That's like the data collection stage and data managing stage. When you're doing experimental design, you're like, how do I manage bias? I'm trying to understand the question. What's the best way for me to answer this question by controlling everything around it so that way I can get the exact thing? And being in sociology, like I said before, you really can't do experiments. There may be natural experiments that you run, but many times you're doing observational studies. And that's where I really specialized in, especially when I did my master that did community health prevention research, so bridging the healthcare with the sociology and for quantitative analysis. And through observational studies, I really learned, okay, we have data. It was collected for a different purpose, but we can repurpose it. There's additional steps we need to make to make sure that it's actually viable and it can have a set of power to it. And that's where I really also got really, really into data quality, data management. I think I went on a little bit of a tangent. I don't know if I answered your initial question. I love a good tangent, especially when it leads to more geekery. With your pre-med background, there are Outside of the ones focused on research and data, were there any other particular courses that really resonated with you that influenced your career track? That's a good question. I would say grad school was Dr. Sanjay Basu. He was an exceptional researcher. You can look him up. He teaches at Stanford, Harvard, all these different things, right? And he taught me how to think critically and frame real-life problems as math problems, as data problems. And specifically, he had a course which was modeling public health. And he wrote a book on this. And so he walked us through his book. And basically, it's like, here's all these various optimization problems throughout the world that you're experiencing in public health. How do you turn that into a model? And yeah. how do you turn that into like basically statistical kind of conversions for that in systems? And it was a very systems thinking approach. And actually, that was the first class that I learned how to code. It was an R. And so I learned R and that was my first coding language. And that's what kind of kicked off the data thing. That was the first class where I was like, this is really cool. I want more of this. And I got obsessed with how do I think about real world problems as data problems, as math problems? And then how do I code it? And then actually, how do I show that work? It was just like the coolest thing ever to me. Do you consider yourself a statistician at all, especially coming from our background? 100%. So maybe not as much now because I'm not as deep into statistics, but I specialize in observational studies for statistics and I have a pretty good toolkit for that. And the research I am published in, my contributions were the statistics. And okay. so I was heavy in R. I did experimental design for statistics. If you ask me about observational studies and experimental design and statistics questions, I will talk your ear off for a while because I just love it. First thing I do when I read research, I go into the methods section and just like geek out on what they did. I still remember my very first econometrics course in school. It just totally kicked my butt and I don't share your same passion, but I'm glad that folks <laughs> like you exist. 
it's a brain teaser for me. And actually, my first stats class in grad school, I almost failed. I actually went to the professor and I was like, look, dude, I'm not cutting it here. Should I stay? He was like, stay, you'll learn, you'll pick it up. And I'm glad I listened to him because by the end of the semester, I was really catching steam. And by the next course that built on top of it, I was really on top of it. When you started branching outside of research into industry, you started your career as a data scientist and eventually getting promotions into senior data scientist and then senior data engineer. For people not familiar with the career progressions in that world, could you share sort of what some of the differences between a data scientist and a senior data scientist are? What responsibilities change? How does your lens on your work change? So I think the big thing, and I think this can apply to a lot of technical roles in general. So typically you'll see this junior level, then you'll have this senior level, and then you have like the staff level. And so at the junior level, you're more so just expected and like, hey, you're coming in, we're going to assign you tasks. You're going to get it done. Make sure it's like a level degree of like correctness and things are just kind of laid out for you and you execute, right? But moving to that senior side is when you move a lot of ambiguity. And so my boss would be like, this is the goal. Figure it out. And again, you're getting a lot more autonomy. And that's that transition from kind of the entry to that senior level is working with that level of autonomy. But what really cements you in that senior role is your ability to have impact, not just with you and your manager and single projects, but for your entire team and ideally other teams as well. And so how can you work across the business to identify opportunities, scope out what needs to be done to to drive that value, and then execute it? And then going to this other side, which is like a little bit above, which is where I'm kind of entering in for this kind of staff side. And maybe it's my own imposter syndrome a little bit, being unwilling to kind of hold that kind of title myself, even though that but that is kind of like my title externally is more so like how do you oversee massive larger projects and start delegating to people and mentoring people to drive this strategy, drive this kind of value, this value with data as a team as well. And that's the completely different skill set that I'm still learning myself. But there's a lot of great articles from much smarter people to describe that. What are some of the resources and tools that you use to level up your game in that regard then? Unfortunately, you can't repeat it now, but shout out to Harpreet Sahoda, the Artist of Data Science podcast. And every week he had a weekly kind of all hands call with a bunch of people. And that's where I met a lot mm. of people who are now mentors now. And every week I was show with questions from things I was dealing with at my job and bring it to this group of people for a group chat. You can probably find the recording <laughs> out there. And actually, that's how I made the transition to data engineering. On those calls were Joe Reese, who was the author, one of the co-authors of Fundamentals of Data Engineering. Mm-hmm. And I would actually end up asking him questions all the time on LinkedIn and he would respond. And he's the reason I got into data engineering because all the problems I was trying to solve as a data scientist were actually data engineering problems. Mm-hmm. And so I would just go to that group, ask questions, get help, come back. I think the biggest thing is like, find a group of peers and then also a group of people who are way more advanced than you. And just talk all the time. It's why like conferences and meetups are so important is because you can talk to people who have a different perspective of the problems you're facing and give you a little like sneak peek of like, oh yeah, I experienced or this is how I would approach it. And many times like the problems you face as a technical person, the technical problems are actually easy. Stack Overflow, now chat GPT. You're smart. You can learn that yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's that applying the technical skills to business 
that's where a lot of people is like really unknown. And that's where I was getting a lot of the advice on because to go from that entry to senior to staff level is not your technical skills. Your technical skills get you the job. It's your mm-hmm. impact on the business and applying those technical skills in unique ways gets you those promotions. Speaking of finding a group of peers, one of the things that you've done is built a really incredible community of data professionals via On The Mark data group there. What inspired you to create that? So On The Mark data was a complete accident. I started posting on LinkedIn just because I wanted a job. I think a lot of people were like that. But for me, is I'm obsessed with funnels and sales funnels. And so when I post on LinkedIn, I was laid off. And I was like, I don't want to apply to jobs. I want jobs to apply to me. And so I'm going to start creating content with the goal of getting the attention of my future employer. And eventually mm-hmm. they're going to reach out. And that's how I got my last job at Hulu. And that's mm-hmm. how I got my current job at Gate. And so through that, I just started building up an audience. And one day, a company reached out to me and said, hey, we want you to create a course for us. And me being the nerd I am, I'm like, yeah, sure. I was going to do it for free because I just love this stuff. And they were like, well, what's your price? And I was like, wait, people want to pay me for this? This is wild, right? And so to get paid, I was like, I need an LLC. And so I created an LLC. But like what really pushed, like why didn't I do like a sole proprietor? Or like why did I take it seriously as a business itself? Was before this, I've tried building startups before. And the last startup I built we made to building an MVP and interviewing for potential funding, but we ultimately decided it was a bad idea and not pursuing. And mm. I just saw the gaps I had as a business professional and as a founder. And so I figured I can use on the mark data as a low stakes way to further build up my business skills and my founder skills. Mm. So when it's your business, you have to manage the money for it. You have to set up the strategy for it. You have to execute on that strategy all while holding like a full time job. And I would argue it was one of the best decisions I made because specifically it taught me how to do sales really well. And being a startup now, I do a lot of sales stuff from a technical perspective. But I got that experience from on the mark data where I was doing sales calls with marketing teams or I was doing sales calls with executives who want to do go to market stuff. And through that, I learned how to have like my whole sales process and how to get people hooked and how to find the right customers. And so it accomplished my goal of really picking up my business skills. I still have it now as an outlet for me to grow in the future, but we'll see. As you were starting to create that and scale things out, what were some of the earlier inflection points that let you know that, hey, I'm on the right track? Definitely. I think the biggest thing was joining Kenji, who is a very popular data science YouTuber and a good friend of mine. He started a media agency and basically they give me brand deals to work with people. And specifically, about once a year, we do a content creator meetup where everyone in the agency comes to a single house, kind of like hacker house or like a content creator house. And we create a bunch of content for a week. And I met like all of my heroes. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And two things. One, I saw my weight. I'm in the same room as these people. This is wild. But two, I saw people who are full-time content creators who are making like pretty good money doing this just creating content, being creative. And that's when it became clear to me. I'm like, oh, this isn't some side hustle fun thing. Mark, you have an opportunity here. You should really capitalize on it. And that's why I really started getting serious. And it showed in my revenue from that date. All of a sudden, just picking up over and over again, month by month. And then I joined a startup (laughs) as a first employee and that dropped right back down. That was, I think, the biggest inflection point was seeing like this content thing. It's just fun and games. There's actual real business and money to make here. And if you take it seriously and drive a strategy with it, 
you can really do some amazing things. In terms of your content strategy there then, are there any particular areas you draw most inspiration from as you're thinking about new types and mediums? So it's less about mediums and it's more about the messaging. Because I think the medium is just depending on where you just kind of resonate with as individuals, where it's video or writing. But I think what's more and more important is understanding who your audience is and understanding what messaging resonates with those. I spend so much time. I do interviews and one-on-ones with so many people all the time because I'm trying to soak up. How are you thinking about problems? What's important to you? What's going to make you like kind of tick and like really trying to engage? That's what I'm obsessed with. And so now when I create content, my audience are data practitioners who are on the more senior side mm-hmm. and also leaders and like connecting those two audiences, right? And so I just focus deeply on what are the challenges of practitioners selling up to leaders? Mm-hmm. And then what are the challenges of leaders engaging with practitioners to understand what's kind of what's happening on the ground? And by focusing on that message over and over and over again, you really start to build a niche. People see you as that person to listen to. And that's why you really start building an audience. It's that repetition. Anyone can do this. It just takes a long time and a lot of effort. The 10-year overnight success story. Yep. I'm like, what? I think four years into this now. And I feel like I'm just now starting to get that inflection point. In looking over your newsletter, a term that was new to me me there is uh, GTM engineering. So as a sales and business development guy, I think of in GTMs all the time. But can you share a bit more about what GTM engineering is and how that's different from other GTM approaches? It's a completely made-up term. But the founder of the startup I joined, the CEO, Chad Sanderson, he has a large audience and I have a large audience. And so we have a unique problem where our problem isn't finding attention for the startup. Our problem isn't getting leads. Our problem is that we have, you know, we're getting millions of impressions a month and lots of people messaging us. How do we optimize on who are the right people to talk to Hmm. when you're a lean startup team? And what we found is that by instead of, you know, I'm not a marketer, I'm not a salesperson, I'm an engineer who happens to get into that world. And that works in my favor or in my benefit when I work with developers because they want to talk to other developers. And what we found was that if we take an engineering-based approach to go to market, thinking about the underlying data behind it, where are the underlying systems behind it, and really approaching kind of like doing sprints for it, is you can actually create a really strong system to drive your funnel to bring attention to it and understand your expectations. And so I argue that go-to-market engineering, that the definition I'm coming up with right now mm-hmm. or coming up with in the article was using engineering best practices and systems thinking to get your first set of customers and drive your go-to-market adoption for a company. Along those lines, tell us more about what you're cooking up at Gable. Gable's been the wildest journey I've been on so far. So... Around last year, actually, been about a year, Chad Sanderson, I interviewed him in my newsletter and he was like, Mark, well, it seems like you're looking for a new job. I'm about to start this startup. Why don't you leave your job? And And the next day I said, yep, I'm quitting. And I quit my job the next day, put in my two week notice. And basically I joined the startup officially in February by like startup, you work kind of in between Mm -hmm. that. And so I joined the three founders specifically on this concept of data contracts, which is essentially API-like agreement between data producers and data consumers. So think like software engineers in Mm -hmm. the database and data scientists in the data warehouse. There is a transfer of data between both sides and they use data 
vastly differently from each other. And so there's this miscommunication on how data is used, which leads to data quality issues. And those data quality issues prevent you from actually leveraging data the way you want to. And so data contracts serve as a way to like bridge and bridge that gap between each other by putting these data quality checks in the CI/CD process, mm -hmm. as well as preventing issues before it's even merged into the code. And so Gable specifically enables data contracts, and more importantly, it's a collaboration platform between all stakeholders in the data lifecycle. And so that's what I've been working on. The reason why I got, like, I quit my job the next day to focus on it is two things. One, it experienced the pain of my data roles. Mm -hmm. And so I literally knew, like, this is a problem. If it was solved, it'd be a huge. The second thing was, like I said before, my last time trying to build a company, there were some mistakes. And one of the mistakes was I didn't do enough user interviews. And that's what we ended up with a bad idea. Chad and the team did over 200 user interviews by the time I talked. They're now like a thousand plus user interviews. It's actually insane. And I saw that. I was like, you understand the problem really well. I'm confident whatever we build, it's you understand the problem space so well that we're going to build the right thing. And so it was easy for me to jump and make that transition. Now, does with the data contracts and managing that entire life cycle, does it um, touch on data licensing as well and in interactions with outside vendors that you're consuming the data from? That's a really good question. So I think the main thing when it comes to data contracts is, you know, you have to have leverage between both parties. So working with external data, you don't have leverage from like people you're consuming data from, right? You may put a contract in place to say like prevent issues once it's already landed. But it's more important that both parties are present and have a conversation with each other. Regarding on external data, so sending your data out to other people, right? Say, for instance, you have a data product. Data contracts are extremely powerful there in a way that you can provide trust in your data. So we say this data product or this data asset is under contract. And by contract, we don't mean in a legal sense. We mean in like these expectations that we're going to adhere to. And the data contract programmatically enforce those. So it's like, hey, this column needs to be a numeric. Here are the semantics for this column. And we don't expect deviations for this column, right? And so that's extremely powerful, especially for like ML, where those small changes can like wreak havoc or break systems or even for dashboards. And so one of the key things is one, both parties need to be able to be there to force the contract on both sides. But if one party can't be there, you can still have those checks for the injection of it. And then for serving it, it's like a saying, hey, this is under contract. We believe this is high value data and you can trust this other compared to sources that aren't under contract. With popularity and like recent talks of regulation on large language models in particular, do you feel there's a use case there for data contracts and helping inform the user experience on the trustworthiness? Absolutely. So like I said, on the go-to-market side, I've been doing a lot of sales calls where many hats in a startup. And the calls I have the most with are European companies hmm. because they understand data governance, because they care about data security and GDPR. And so taking a step back just from AI just in general, like data security and data governance, we're essentially building a data governance as code solution. Many times when people talk about data governance, they have these amazing kind of slides and frameworks and like understanding the business, right? But then the challenge was, well, then we have all these rules, we have all these understanding. How do we enforce this at scale? And so data contracts enable these data governance people to actually enforce their amazing ideas at scale. And then regarding AI, right? is, again, I'm more so brainstorming now because now we're going to like this new charted territory. People are still figuring it out, right? But conceptually, the big reason that I pushed into data engineering was Andrew Ng talking about data-centric AI, mm -hmm. where 
essentially is for model-centric AI, which you'll focus on like the 2010s, right? You put a stronger model and then you get these better results. Well, now you put given better data with maybe weaker models and you have way better results. And so thinking about the accuracy of your AI or the reliability of your AI, data quality is paramount for that. And you can put controls in place before hmm. the data even reaches the AI model. I think that's extremely powerful in regulation and in compliance for AI, especially saying this AI model uses data that is under contract with these constraints and these are expectations and will not deviate. And if it does, we'll know ahead of time. I think that's extremely powerful for AI. Along those lines, just looking at all the broad developments in the AI space, are there any particular areas of it on the research and development side that you follow closely? I think another, a person I love following is again, Harpreet Sahoda. He has actually dived into the LLM. Also the ML ops community, they focus on LLM ops. Mm -hmm. so that's how I learned about like the RAG architecture and yeah, yeah. like that for, for LLMs. Highly recommend you check out those folks. Also madewithml.com. That's an amazing resource to learn how to build these ML tools. And also the OpenAI folks, they've been exceptional. I mean, I think it's part of their strategy to get more as many developers as possible and embed into that. But I think the key thing is like regarding research, you know, I'm not reading research papers because again, I'm in the data engineering space rather than the AI space. But what I do focus on is like, what are people building? What are some really cool GitHub repos? How are they doing it? Can I build it myself over a weekend? I think that's where a lot of the learning comes from. And so if you want to stay on top of this, you can't know everything. It's moving so quick. Things are changing so fast. Instead, what you need to do is if you're a practitioner, find really cool projects and build something. That's going to be the best way you learn. And then if you're a leader, that's a little bit harder because I'm not going to be expecting you to code all the time, right? Is really find people who are trusted voices who are synthesizing this information, right? One of my favorite people to listen to is Ben Vashisa. Mm -hmm. He wrote the book From Data to Profit that really speaks to that. And so find the people who are really invested and credible, not just someone who's on like LinkedIn or TikTok being like popular. They're demonstrating popular and credible. And so find those people who have the credentials to really explain what's happening. And the very last question I have for you, Mark, is if you could travel back in time and go back to college right now, what would you change about the types of things you'd studied, if any? I'm actually really happy what I studied. I'm actually happy I don't come from a STEM background, like traditionally coming from sociology, because that gave me really the writing skills I use now. And then I'm really happy I did my master's in community health and prevention research, because that gave me the statistic skills, but gave me a really unique perspective about applying kind of these research skills. And so I would actually double down what I did. I think people really focus on data, and this is going to be my hot take. I don't feel too strongly about data analytics and data science degrees. I think many times a lot of places are money grabs for those. There are some really great ones, but I think actually going to a domain mm -hmm. and learning the data skills for that specific domain is way more powerful because now you have concrete kind of examples of applying these skills and you can always ship industries because data goes across all industries, right? And so I think the key thing is I would double down on following my interests that are not data related and then bringing data into it. And then for advice that I would give that I wouldn't double down on is I would probably be like, chill out, bro. <laughs> like you're way too stressed. Like I spent my 20s way, way too stressed. And now I'm 30. 
And I'm like, I wish I relaxed way more. I could have got to the end result with a lot less pain. And any college student now who's fretting over it's December now, so probably their finals. Yeah, chill. It's going to be okay. I got like straight up failed classes and got C's and somehow made into great schools and great jobs. It's not the end of the world. Enjoy yourself. Just chill should be the official logo on your website then. Yeah, I think that should be. I'm put on my LinkedIn, like just chill. <laughs> awesome, Mark. Well, thank you so much for sharing yourself and your experiences. I'm really excited to see what you're cooking up next. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 